Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The FT Student housing. Are the traditional terrace properties still a good buy? Small caps. Why are they outperforming larger companies? And changing your bank. Have you been convinced yet? I'm Elaine Moore, and in Jonathan Ely's absence, I'll be giving you all the money news in downloadable form this week with the help of my FT colleagues, Kate Allen. Hello. Lucy Warwick-Ching. Hello. And our special studio guest, Rob Harley, Senior Research Analyst at Best Invest. Hello. First up, student housing. This week is Freshers' Week in the UK, where first-year students at universities across the country sign up to clubs, make new friends and perhaps drink too much. It's also the week when they settle into their new accommodation, which in recent years has been changing from scruffy terraces to large new builds. Student housing is often promoted as a good investment, but with increasing competition from big developers, is that still the case? Kate Allen is the FT's statistics journalist and has been looking into this story for us this week. Kate, let's start with the case for investing in student housing. Why has it been recommended in the past? Well, Student housing has been a very popular investment category for potential buy-to-let investors, uh, basically because the yields are high. The reason for that is that properties tend to be at the cheaper end of the market, and obviously you've got a number of people living in that property, so you can charge a pretty high rent. And the idea is that they're not living there all the time, are they? The students come in for their university terms and then they often go back home again. So you've got a property that someone's paying rent for across the year, but they're not inhabiting all the time. Is that right? Um, That's true, although sometimes um, students may take on less than a year's tenancy. So so why is it then that, uh, that buy-to-let investing in student properties, it, there's now a question mark over it? Well, individual buy-to-let investors are facing increasing competition from these big student developers like Unite, who are doing these huge new build schemes on sites which they can pick up pretty cheaply, such as by railway lines and so forth, because other residential developers don't want them. So what you're saying is that in university cities in the past, students would have gone out to uh, some particular areas and they would all be moving into houses that have been converted to their, their mm-hmm. specifications. And now they're moving into these large blocks. Is that happening across the UK in all cities or in particular cities? It's in particular cities. I think that there's, um, in particular in northern cities, um, there's quite a lot of these big new blocks now. In the southeast in particular and in Scotland, there's less um, presence from the big developers. So the, there are still opportunities. And what do they look like, these new big blocks? They can tend to be pretty um, pretty monolithic, actually. <laughs> One of them won this year's Carbuncle Cup for the worst architectural building of the year. That doesn't sound good. Where was this one? That was in North London. It's a University College London building. I think I've seen, I think I've seen pictures of this on the internet. So why was it winning the, the worst Carbuncle Cup? What was wrong with it as a building? Well, 
actually one of the interesting reasons why these student blocks are so um, good for developers is because they can they don't have to apply the same construction standards that they do to permanent residential accommodation, which means build costs are cheaper. But it means that, for example, you don't necessarily have to have a window that looks outside. But they still have to be inhabitable? Yes, but the standards are lower. Okay, so, I mean, people listening perhaps would think that the standards for student accommodation were fairly low anyway. Are you saying that they're, they're getting lower and lower now? No, I think that these developers have kind of hit a sweet spot because the terraced accommodation and the kind of semi-detached stuff, which tends to be pretty cheap to acquire, um, is at a lower standard. So, so students want to live in these residential blocks because they're a higher quality than the kind of shabby traditional student housing that we all think of when we think of student digs um, and yet the standard is lower than that required for other re- other residential developers so it's a really interesting little sliver of the residential market that they've got there. But student numbers are still rising aren't they? I know that there's been a new introduction of fees this year but there are more students coming in and wanting to go to university mm-hmm. so presumably there is still a need for housing whatever the type so investing in traditional terrace housing might still be a good idea. It could be um, a lot of the growth tends to be in Uh, foreign students who are willing to pay more for a better class of accommodation and that's one of the real growth areas for these big developers. So if you if you're not convinced by the old style housing and if you want to somehow make some money out of these new blocks how would you go about that? Um, There are an increasing number of ways for investors to put their money into um, what you could call indirect student accommodation investment. For example Unite Group which is the leading developer of student housing issued a retail bond um, at the end of last year and there's also um, a couple of uh, funds which have opened up. Thanks very much Kate. You can read more about the various types of student property and student funds and make up your own mind whether it's a sound investment or not in this weekend's FT Money or online at ft.com forward slash money. Still to come on the show, more people are looking online for ways to switch their bank, but are any of them actually doing it? But first, small caps. Consider this. The FTSE fledging index is up 28.1% year-to-date, compared to a gain of 11.2% for the FTSE 100, which tracks the largest companies. Why the difference? Small caps are usually deemed a higher risk, more volatile investment than larger companies, but some fund managers would disagree and say, look at the share price performance of banks, for example, or BP following the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Rob Harley, Senior Research Analyst at Best Invest, has joined us in the studio to talk about small caps. Rob, first of all, can we explain exactly what we mean when we say small caps? When we talk about small caps, we really talk about companies with a market capitalisation of uh, below £1.5 billion. And this really equates to about the bottom 10% of the FTSE All Share Index. Can you give us some names and who are we, who are we thinking about? Well, there aren't that many household names in, in that part of the index. Um, a lot of them tend to be industrials or consumer service companies. There are some small retailers. ASOS is one that's a larger small cap, though. Uh, there are some uh, construction companies as well, some of the house builders, uh, like Barrett's as well, might fit into that category. But a lot of them tend to be industrials, which uh, your man on the street might not have heard of. So can we make any um, assessments about the sorts of industries that we find within the small cap index? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the structure of the small cap index is, is actually quite different to that of the, uh, the larger FTSE 100 index. The big FTSE 100 index tends to be dominated by banks, pharma and big oil. 
whereas the uh, smaller cap index tends to have much larger exposures to industrials, consumer services, um, household goods as well. So so we understand that there's quite a broad range of companies and I believe there's also quite a broad range in sizes as well. So you mentioned there that it's below 1.5 billion market cap, but, but within that you can have extremely small, can't you? That's right. I mean, the, the market cap scale goes all the way down to sort of 50 million. The fact is that the vast majority of investment managers out there tend to really focus on the 100 to 1.5 billion market cap range. But it means that there is a, a really huge, broad sweep of companies that you can look at in this area. There is a massive sweep of companies in, in that area. Uh, consequently, we would argue that when you are investing in this particular part of the market, it is very important to identify a manager who you believe you can extract the best opportunities within there. So let's talk about performance then. Uh, we've acknowledged that there's a huge variety of companies within this area, but um, the performance over the last year or the last few years has been extraordinary, hasn't it, in the indices? Performance has been very, very strong. And, and this is a, it's a combination of two factors. Partly um, a re-rating of I, valuations have been have been pushed higher. Um, but what we've also seen is that the FTSE 100 has also struggled, relatively speaking. And that's partly because uh, the big oil and the mining sectors um, have, uh, the performance of those sectors has faded somewhat um, with question marks over Chinese growth. Can you explain, though, why, um, why the performance of small caps has been so good? So the performance of small caps, we said it's partly poor performance from the uh, larger companies. It's partly been because um, uh, fund managers or investors have been prepared to pay a higher earnings multiple uh, for these stocks in anticipation of higher future earnings. So are investors just uh, more willing to take on risk at the moment? Are they ignoring some of the the previous reasons they would have to stay away from this sector? Uh, It it is a fact that um, investors are prepared to take on more risk um, and valuations across the market have risen. However, it's, it's important to point out that, that um, the valuation, we look at the headline valuations for the FTSE 100, you can have a couple of, uh, of uh, mega caps, particularly in the old sector, which skew the valuations to the downside. If we actually look at the median price to earnings ratios for the small cap markets versus the large cap markets, they're actually quite similar. So can you, uh, I've heard in the past that this is an area where active stock picking can pay off. Are there any particular companies that you can talk about that have performed extremely well compared to others? Yes, there are a number of companies who've been very successful at investing in this part of the market. Uh, Historically, Investec, Casnov, um, Standard Life, uh, more recently, Fidelity, Uh, They've all been uh, very successful players in this particular part of the market. Uh, We would issue a a note of caution, though. And some of these funds are are now getting quite large. A lot of investors know who these people are. And consequently, many of these managers have either closed their funds or are no longer marketing them. Uh, So it, it pays to be careful with your fund selection. Thank you very much, Rob. You can read Jonathan Ely's cover feature on small caps in this weekend's FT Money and online at ft.com forward slash money. And finally today, bank accounts. An online price comparison site has reported a 45% increase in the number of people visiting its website looking for information about switching to a new bank. 
Last week, the UK's largest banks all agreed to take part in a new seven-day switching scheme to make it easier and faster for customers to move to a new provider. The industry says initial signs of consumer interest are encouraging. Lucy, last week you organised an online Q&A at the FT so that readers could ask the industry about this new seven-day switching plan. Can you start by giving us a little rundown of what these new rules are? So basically the rules have come in because prior to these rules um, it could take up to sort of 30 days to actually be able to switch between current accounts. So as you say, these new rules are supposed to mean that now if you choose to switch your account then it can only take up to seven days to switch. So much faster really. So it is a good sign if people are actually looking to switch as well. I think the rules should should give people more assurance. And what was the reason behind this? Why was the industry willing to let people switch between providers more easily? You would think that a bank wouldn't want to let its customers go. Well, it's just, you know, they've bowed to pressure, really, because people have been complaining about this for such a long time. You know, and as technology has improved, it really is very difficult to actually argue that it should take so long. You know, banks should be able to speed up this process and now I guess we we can see if they can actually do it. I, I have every hope that they can do this but I do wonder why it wasn't brought in earlier and as these new figures show I think lots of people will actually be taking advantage and switching. So this 45% increase, that's the number of people looking for information mm. about switching, that's not an increase in the number of people actually switching yet and we won't know how many people decide to do this for a little while. I think that um, although it will only take seven days there are still some big concerns that people have. What did you find from readers or, or people asking questions on your Q&A? It was very interesting because the questions were very varied really um, but some of the questions seem to focus on things like overdrafts. So, you know, if you have an overdraft, does that mean that you can actually switch banks? Um, And the answer we had from our experts is yes, in theory, that you can do this. I think assuming that you've operated your overdraft within the agreed terms and conditions and that your creditworthiness is still the same, then this shouldn't be a problem. We'll have to actually see how this works out. But Banks are keen to get your business anyway. So some like Nationwide and Halifax that are actually um, giving sort of introduction offers on overdraft rates. And Nationwide Flex Direct Accounts offers a 0% on overdrafts for the first 12 months. So they do want people to come and just because you've got an overdraft doesn't mean that they don't want you as a customer. Uh, what other sort of questions were people asking of the experts? Another question came from a freelancer. I think lots of readers and listeners will be in the same situation. He was saying that he always has to keep seven years' worth of accounts, and whereas before, with his account, he could actually go to his bank and say, look, HMRC's asked for seven years' worth, so what will happen if I switch? Will I still be able to get my old statements? And I'm afraid this isn't actually covered by the switch service. So if you do need statements, then I think if you are going to make the switch, then you'll probably need to make sure you have all your old ones before you switch. Um, Otherwise, you will probably have to go back to your old bank and they may charge for this service. Um, But I guess one of the most popular questions from our readers was, um, you know, unsurprisingly, on incentives. A few people asked when her bank would actually start paying her to stay with them because, you know, there has... So, so some, when? When yeah. when will they pay us to <laughs> yeah. stay with them? Is that going to happen? Kevin Mountford, who's one of our experts, um, answered and said that he did think that some banks would start to reward existing customers as opposed to kind of purely focusing on acquiring new ones. I mean, he was saying um, Santander uh, with the 123 offer was actually trying to encourage people 
you know, to remain loyal to their banks. So I think we probably will see more of this um, in the coming months. But then again, so the other incentive for switching, there's we've mentioned these on the show before, but things like First Direct and Halifax offer um, cash incentives, so £125 and £100 respectively for those. And others um, are also kind of tempting you in with these loyalty offers and vouchers and things. So, And one thing I've, I was surprised to learn, um, even though I've looked at this in the past, is that not all banks have signed up to this. Not all banks have to move your account in seven days. Why is that? No, well, some, some I think Bank of India hasn't signed up. I mean, on the whole, the majority of banks have signed up. So you'll probably find that if you're you can check which banks have signed up on the Payments Council website. So go on there. There's a long, comprehensive list of everyone who has signed up. But it may be worth checking before you start trying to switch. It's probably worth checking to see if your bank's on there because you don't want to assume that it's going to take seven days and that it's going to be hassle-free if actually it could take a month. And and the other good thing about the new rules is the fact that uh, your old bank is obliged to keep sending on any payments that go into your old bank account. So it really is supposed to be hassle-free. But I guess if they're not signed up, then, you know, who knows really what could happen. Thanks very much, Lucy. You can read more about the best deals available from banks or look online to see the results of the FT's Q&A on account switching by visiting ft.com forward slash money. That's all we have time for this week, but you can read all of these stories and more in this week's FT Money section or online at ft.com forward slash money. And if you'd like to tell us your views on student housing, small caps, banks or anything else, or if you have a question that you'd like us to answer, then just email us money at ft.com. Until next week, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Lucy, Kate and our special studio guest, Rob Harley, Senior Research Analyst at Best Invest. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.